Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm sitting here with Ben Hunter, and we are sitting here with Elliot Perlman, the author of Maybe the Horse Will Talk. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you, Olivia. Um, Elliot, do you want to uh, introduce us to Stephen Mazarov and his story, and uh, what led you to write this book? Sure. Stephen Mazarov is... Um, well, I'm hoping that the reader feels that he's you. And that <laughs> uh, goes for women too. Why do I say that? Because Stephen Masarov, and this is actually the first thing we read in the whole book, we feel, I, I'm suspecting that a tremendous number of Australians feel as he feels in the opening line, which is, I am absolutely terrified of losing a job I absolutely hate. And that's, uh, you know, sounds like a paradox because if you absolutely hate it, why are you terrified of losing it? And yet I think a ton of people will um, identify with that. They, it will resonate with them. And I think the reason that, you know, so many of us feel that way is because we know that there really aren't that many good jobs out there. And, um, and that is because... You know, despite the fact that the unemployment rate isn't officially high, there's this massive category of people that are underemployed. And, you know, politicians on both sides of politics never really talk about that. But, you know, there, you know, so many of us, these are people in the gig economy, people, and, you know, I should say they could be really hardworking people, really smart people, really well-educated people, um, but they don't have as many hours as they need to, you know, to pay for themselves to live, to, you know, start a family, to keep a family. And, uh, you know, so the unemployment rate over the last 40 years in Australia has hovered between, you know, three and a half and seven and a half percent. But the underemployment rate, so the number of people in the workforce or the proportion of people in the workforce that don't have the hours that they want hovers between uh, 15 and 20, 22%. So when you add those two Mm. groups together, you get something like 25% of the workforce in Australia doesn't have as many hours as they want. And that has its own stress because you can't pay for your education or pay off your education. You can't put a deposit on an apartment or a house or, you know, you, you can't pay for your health insurance. You All these things you can't do. You can't plan for your future. And um, so you get stressed. And even though you're not officially unemployed, you feel very much like you are and your life is not that much different from someone who is unemployed or even someone who's still a student when, in fact, you're no longer a student. Mm. And what it means is that for the other 75% of the workforce that does have a full-time permanent job, those people put up with all sorts of appalling treatment, working disgusting hours, being prepared to be contactable 24-7, um, you know, being chewed out by psychopathic managers um, or, uh, you know, being set targets arbitrarily set you know that have no no basis in in the real world and then if they manage to make those targets uh the targets get increased and they get set new targets 
So those people are incredibly stressed um, and, and they put up with it because they know instinctively, even if they don't know the statistics, they know that um, it's hard to get a full-time well-paid job, a job that doesn't economically humiliate them. So they often let themselves be humiliated in other ways. And, you know, there is... So the, in, in both sort of extremes um, of the workforce, you now have this thing called work-family conflict, which is that situation where the demands of work are incompatible with the demands of family and social bonds. You can't be uh, everything that your employer wants you to be and be everything that you want to be for your family and your friends. It's not possible. And what usually happens is that uh, work wins and so you are some kind of a you know, slave or if you don't have the work, the search for work wins uh, and family life and friendships and everything, you think, okay, I'm going to take care of them later and then maybe there's no later and you end up with a tombstone that said, here lies Ben in 2019... He made budget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to make budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see what I mean? And so, you know, you think um, it sounds ridiculous when we say it, but we're actually, it's so many so of us are living true. our lives like, well, that's what I've got to do. I've got to make budget. I've got to make budget more than I need to, you know, see my wife or um, take care of my girlfriend or, um, uh, you know, care for my children or take my mother to a doctor. I've got to make budget more than any of those things when in fact all those things are more important than actually making budget. There's um, an exchange in this novel, one of many, many witty and delicious workplace moments. Thank you. Um, in which your hero, Stephen Mazaroff, is, is conversing with a guy who sits over from him uh, very briefly because they're not supposed to. Um, and uh, I'm paraphrasing this, of mm -hmm. course, but um, the, the chap he's talking to essentially says, God, I wish I'd just be noticed or, or vilified by the boss like, yeah. like you've been and he says oh no you don't want that you're lucky and he says why don't i feel lucky and then <laughs> and the word Stephen Mazarov just spouts out is because you're a white collar wage slave yeah that's, that's right that's right yeah and and he actually contradicts what he just said a moment ago he goes no no you're you know you're you know you're lucky and he says but i yeah i'm lucky I don't, I don't, I don't feel lucky. Why don't I feel lucky? Because you're not lucky. You're a white collar wage slave. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, I mean, the, the thing I've, I've I've said all this about my view of the contemporary Australian, uh, you know, political economy. Mm. But and it sounds really dire, and I think it is. But it's what I hope. Uh, has come across in the book, although not though so far in this interview, is that it's um, it's I'm trying to tell it in a I'm trying to use humour to make these points, and uh, I've done that because I think people really need it, and I think it makes people feel so much better if you can laugh at the problem, and then it's sort of like saying you know the emperor really has no clothes, and you have um, you, you've sort of slain the dragon by making fun of it. And um, you can't really be so terrified of it if we're laughing at it. And if you're not so terrified of it, then maybe we can do something about it. 
what's that case of like, if you don't laugh, you cry. Yeah. So you choose laughter instead. Yeah. You, you've oh. lavished this book with really good humour. Oh, thank and you. There are bits where you hate yourself for laughing because you're like, oh, this is awful, but also hilarious. It's <laughs> a very like, um, uncomfortable. Yeah. In <laughs> the best way. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, a main character works for a, a law firm called Freely Savage. Yes. Part of yes. <laughs> like, every time they say Freely Savage, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, but it's just, it's so, it's subtle, but at the same time, it's so obvious. And I think that's just the thing that is so, that underlies our current working experiences that like everyone around you is going this is ridiculous yeah, um, yeah. but everyone just puts <coughs> up with it i really hope hr never listens to this i'm fine i'm very happy <laughs> i'm just <laughs> well, gonna put right. that out there and, and the other thing is there that you know hr is treated like the secret police mm. so yeah. if you have a work problem the very last place you will take it is hr because they're the secret police they're spying on you they're reporting everything you think and feel you know, to the people that are oppressing you and, um, you know, they they can't be trusted at all. And they're literally used as um, sorry, a spoiled a sort of fragment of your brilliant book. Um, they're literally used as a weapon against yeah. Stephen. <laughs> yes, um, he, yeah. When he falls under the um, guise of, you know, he falls under the pressure of these people to um, start surveying his colleagues about <laughs> hot desking and new uh, techniques of improving the workspace. Uh, how did how, what did you go to to sort of mine all these horrible elements of corporate life? Well, for a start, in in another life, I was a lawyer. Um, technically, I still am. Um, I used to be a solicitor, and then I was an associate to a Supreme Court judge, which meant that even then, while I was nominally working for one person uh, i really was working for one person but i was employed by a government department um and then i was a barrister and i tried to combine writing and being a barrister and um you know my father says that i see money and i run the other way <laughs> um because i chose to be a writer instead of a barrister but um working in a law firm, in a couple of law firms in, in um, the CBD in Melbourne, which is where I'm from, um, you know, was all that I, 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 I couldn't believe that people really lived like this. Mm. And I knew, um, obviously, I needed a job desperately like everybody else, uh, but I knew that the rest of my life could not be like this. I have to figure out an alternative. And that's where I saw you know, people behaving absurdly and often cruelly. And, you know, the funny thing was that, well, actually, this was the scary thing. There were people that I'd gone to uni with that I really liked and respected and we, you know, had fun together. And these were smart people and it was sort of like, um, well, they changed. You know, they, they, they drank the Kool-Aid and they became... Uh, you know, they they buried or even killed that side of themselves that was interesting. Because if you if you had met the person they became at uni, there's no way you would have wanted to hang out with them and they wouldn't have wanted to hang out with them. And then they... Um, it was like they, they completely denied that they'd ever been that person. And it was almost as though the firm said... Uh, look, it's, you know, very difficult to get a job here. So we want an impressive CV with all your extracurricular interests. 
okay, that's good, you've got the job, now take those interests and put them in the umbrella stand by the front door because you won't be needing them. And also, if you have a sense of irony, please put that in the umbrella stand because you won't be needing that either. And uh, uh, I I couldn't do it. yeah, so uh, you know, it's uh, you could predict actually that I I wouldn't be spending my life there. But finally, years later, I thought, well, to make the points I want to make about contemporary Australia, I can do it through my experience. And sadly, things have only got worse. Yes, it's so yeah. funny because it's a job that's so often romanticised. Like there's shows like Suits and Boston Legal that just make it seem so glamorous and. I don't know. It's well, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Read this book, you might think differently. Um, there's Stephen is at the very, you've kind of taken Stephen to the logical extreme of um, the horrible things you could possibly do to try and keep a job that you hate. You've really taken it as a thought experiment, I feel, and said what's, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And um, he finds himself through his own sort of slapdash engineering um, in a place where he has to defend um, allegations of uh, sexual misconduct in a workplace. Um, that's very uncomfortable. Um, oh, but so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what brought you there? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, di- I did want to... Um, I should say I began the book before the Me Too movement... Um, and you know, I can prove that. <laughs> You've got court, a paper trail. In a court, yeah. No, I um, think you can tell, like in in a, in a good way. Like it reads, it reads from a time where it wasn't spoken about as publicly as it is now. It, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it is uh, referenced a couple of times in the book because mm-hmm. I, I felt, um, you know, it would have been crazy of me to ignore it. Um, but the. You know, the, I, I thought I, I want him to be in a difficult position and the difficult position is, yeah, defending something that is, well, certainly if it's true, it's indefensible. And um, he has trouble imagining it not being true. And I think, um, I don't know, unfortunately for women, they probably won't be so shocked. Um, but uh, certainly a lot of men, because, you know, there are male perpetrators and then there are a category of men that think, well, I would never do anything like this. And the problem for women with that category of men, of whom I'm one, is that you, 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 you're, it's not raw for you because you think, well, I would never do that. So um, you, it's not that you don't believe it intellectually, but... You're not so close to it to realise what a, what a problem it is. So I took him, a guy who would never do something like that, and put him at the coalface of that mm. problem and said, I'm going to make it your problem. How does a good person, a moral or ethical person, respond in this situation? And um, they're the only parts of the novel that are deliberately not at all funny. Um, you know, and uh, I was talking to um, to the CEO of Penguin, um, 
who uh, read the book, and she's a woman, and um, she said that as you know, funny as she found the book, those books were, sorry, that part of the book was shocking to her. Um, Good. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, thank goodness because it means nothing like anything like that has come near her life. But um, yeah, it's it's it's. Look, I'm I'm pleased if it but can it's not, be. It's, you know, it's not something you want to be glib about. No, mm. no, well, not at all. And so the the sort of tricky part was having a book that's very humorous in tone and sort of skirting, letting the almost putting up a fence around those parts to say this this bit's not funny and um and you know i hope i've been able to do that it's very brave mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh, i think it's terrific that you went there and yeah. sort of you know took Humor up that challenge when deployed right can be so powerful in driving home the darker parts and i think that's something that we're really opening up to in a lot of our um like media like our books and tv shows and whatnot so, you know, good on you. No, thanks. <laughs> I want to go back to that uh, little uh, nugget you teased out earlier about the implausibility of family life in um, the modern work economy. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got characters in this book who are successful in commercial law and that seems to be at a complete antithesis of being able to parent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is is uh, is that the case? <laughs> um, well, you have children. You <laughs> could you do law and do both? Is it even possible? Look, I mean, it is possible, and I should say, I don't. This isn't a lawyer bashing exercise. <laughs> um, I've got good friends who are lawyers, and lawyers are, um, you know, like like just like real people. <laughs> and like. um, yeah, <clears throat> and you know, so you'll find really good people who are doing important work and helping people. Um, but the problem is, particularly in those mega city corporate law firms, that the way they're set up um, allows the, the fostering of a culture that permits corporate psychopaths to flourish. And um, so, yeah, everything about the work environment there stops you from or makes it incredibly hard to be the kind of parent that you might wish you could be but it's not just lawyers I mean any any mm. high demand job which is my my point um, extrapolating from the story back to Australian society generally if we're all so stressed out by work I mean how can you be the parent that you want to be the the partner that you want to be the friend that you want to be um you know, it's it's um, it's it's almost like we're enduring an epidemic of chronic stress. I think you 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 see it kind of. People get angry really quickly, and people are often rude. Um, and you think, where's that coming from? Um, and a lot of people, particularly men, will kind of look at you in a potentially threatening or violent way or or at least defensive mm. and um you know a lot of women on the street won't make eye contact with other people because <clears throat> you know they just don't want to get involved in anything and you think what the hell has happened how do you have a sense of community if people either won't engage with each other 
or they do it on hostile terms. Um, so yeah, that it's it's a function of chronic stress, I think, which is a function <clears throat> in itself of this these extremes of work where either you're desperate to find enough or you've got way too much and you're terrified of, of losing your job. Mm. So you put mm. up with appalling treatment. Do you think of that wholesale um, desperation is um, helping to stem or, or um, slow down progress in making more acceptable workplace and stamping out toxic masculinity and sexual violence in the workplace at its most extreme yeah i think i think it makes um all kinds of social progress uh more difficult you know yeah trying to deal with racism sexism uh you know bullying generally um there are certain environments that where bullying and and uh sexism and casual racism and sometimes not so casual racism um, flourish mm. because there are people in power that feel that they have complete impunity. They can get away with anything. There's no one to stop it. Um, and maybe there, there's a sort of a veneer of civility that you get from HR, mm. you know. But um, we all know whose side HR is on. So... Um, side that's paying them yeah yeah you know follow the money so <laughs> so you know who's anybody kidding and there's um, just this weird like the way that we deal with it is to me really weird and unhealthy like we've there's this entire industry the wellness industry devoted to making us less stressed and i think it, it's just such a sanitized way of approaching like general health and well-being because you know like you can pay thousands of dollars going to yoga retreat and that will cure all your chronic stress at work instead of actually dealing with the problem. Or yeah. workplaces that bring in a masseuse yeah. Yeah. Where for their employees that are working 14 hour days. That's right, that's right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so we're going to provide you with coffee and uh, masseuse and, you know. Fruit basket. Yeah, and, ex you know. Yeah, and make and make healthy basket. choices. Uh, yeah, yeah, don't forget, it. eat healthy but don't sleep while you're yeah. facetiming your children to put them yeah, yeah. Them bedtime stories a absolutely absolutely <laughs> you know and um so you see uh you know marital breakdown substance abuse um alcoholism domestic violence um you know gambling addictions porn addictions shopping addictions i mean anything to numb the pain of what you're feeling um and it's all incredibly socially corrosive and toxic. If you were, um, you know, living on another planet looking down at Earth, you would think, why on Earth do these people live this way? It's, it's crazy. And the thing about being a writer is because you essentially work by yourself, you've got the time to, to look at these things while everybody else is out doing them mm. um, and you know most people are so busy making sure they're not late for work and meeting a deadline and um, you know satisfying some arbitrarily set target um, that they don't have time to barely acknowledge it and if they do acknowledge it they can't question it and if they do question it they certainly don't have time mental space 
or the power to solve it. So um, if we can start talking about this kind of thing with humour, so, you know, I'm not asking you to go on a bus or a train or lie in your bed and feel pain, but <laughs> I want to I entertain you. And then maybe if you have friends that read it too, you can discuss it and talk about where it, it is similar to your life or the lives of your friends or family. And, you know, we, if we start to question it, we've got some chance of changing it. But if we don't even acknowledge it, um, it's just going to keep going. Thank you very much for spending some time with us and, and talk, talking to us about this awesome book. Um, can I ask quickly before we sort of wrap up? Mm -hmm. um, you've had a couple of books um, adapted for what, one for television, one for cinema. Mm -hmm. um, how, how has that experience been? And um, would you will imagine this one? On will we see the horse on screen? <laughs> well, maybe we'll the talk. horse. Maybe the horse will act. Maybe the horse will <laughs> act. Um, look, already. I mean, today, the day we're recording this is the first day the book's been available. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very early in its life, and already. Um, there's been a couple of inquiries about the film and TV rights, so that's very heartening. I mean, I, I can see it um, as, mm. a, as a TV series, but mm. then, you know, I would say that. But, <laughs> I, no, um, you know, but I, I mean, of all the things I've written, this is um, certainly among the more visual, I think. Um, there's a lot of dialogue. <coughs> it's very snappy. Mm. It's very witty. And there's a tight cast of characters i guess thank you i should send you out to sell it yeah um, yeah <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be wonderful <laughs> yeah um yeah and look it, it's it's a terrific experience getting anything adapted on whole but it's not without its pains because i'm usually <laughs> the junior partner in it i mean that's usually the okay. deal and so so you don't just sign it over and step away you're you stay yeah, well, I, I, because I'm really interested in film and television and, you know, I'm a kind of tragic film buff and TV buff and, and music buff. I'm a failed musician amongst a number <laughs> of things that I've failed at. And um, so I know very much how I see it. And because of the economics of these things, um, I always lose power. And there's so much that I like in, in the adaptations, but there are things that I would change. And, you know, because as you can tell from our conversation today, um, social issues are important to me. It can be dispiriting when the stories are adapted and that gets sucked out of them. Right. But, um, cause there are points I want to make about contemporary Australia and they can be a bit uncomfortable for broadcasters or for, you know, um, but I don't think we should shy away from them. I think it makes it better. But um, I don't have the power. <laughs> <laughs> I never have the power. <laughs> well, we'll get you some more power for next time <laughs> Thank you come you. in. I don't know how, but we'll do it. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for coming in today, Elliot. It's been wonderful. And for everyone listening at home, you can grab your copy of Maybe the Horse Will Talk at booktopia.com.au. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. 
And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.